There we go. You'll want to get out your sermon outline. Hopefully it says something about gifts on it. i got too many pieces of paper up here. All right. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Finally have gotten there as we race through this book. Racing may not be the most accurate term. But 1 Corinthians 12 is one of the most well-known but probably least understood passages. And we're dividing it up. Uh, and I'm doing it somewhat unfairly by taking a chunk out of the middle, which we're going to look at next week. So we got the first 11 verses and like the last four uh, today. So if you would turn with me there, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Jumping down to verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, and gifts of healing, helping, and ministering in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We need it. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is so much the emphasis of this passage in front of us. We ask that you would pour him out upon us, that he might give light to our darkened understanding, he might give heat to thaw our hardened hearts, he might help us to understand this very hard uh, and difficult passage that we might be transformed by the renewing of our mind into the likeness of Christ. Thank you that First Corinthians is a love letter to self-centered people pointing us to Jesus. We need him now more than ever. So bring us to the cross, bring us to repentance, bring us to yourself. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to tell you about Cody. Cody is confident in his walk with the Lord. He reads his Bible at home. He prays every day. He regularly shares his faith with others. He listens to a John Piper sermon on the way to work and a Tim Keller sermon on the way home. And he attends at least two big conferences every year. And yet the greatest source of Cody's confidence is rooted not in his private devotion or edifying instruction, but is in close accountability relationship with his friend Steve. Cody and Steve meet every week for lunch and talk about all kinds of struggles they both face. They ask each other the hard questions, and then they discuss the next chapter in John Frame's Systematic Theology. They sharpen that book's about that thick. Um, they sharpen each other when needed and often encourage each other. And Cody is certain that all the pieces for him to grow spiritually and to flourish as a Christian are in place. Scripture, 
fellowship, accountability, just not church. When he was asked about that, Cody said he used to go to church, but he stopped. You know, the style just really wasn't what I was looking for, and you know, I struggled to connect with all those elderly people, you know, and those other people that are different from me. And I disagreed with some of the decisions of the church leaders, and the pastors are always meddling in my life. And, you know, there's all those less mature Christians in the church, and they were holding me back. In fact, he boasts that he's spiritually flourishing because he no longer is in the church. He's free to live for Jesus however he sees fit. Since the church was a spiritual burden. I'd like to say that's just a made-up story. But I think Cody's one of the examples in the modern evangelical movement that revealed this conviction that the local church is an unnecessary spiritual burden. It's evidenced by a couple of realities. First, it is a broken place full of sinners. There's no perfect church, of course, but the harsh reality is that the dysfunction and lack of biblically-minded leaders in many churches uh, have actually harmed God's people to such an extent that wounded sheep generally grow disenchanted with the church and conclude that church simply isn't worth it. Second, uh, the convenience of immediate access to information through social media has tempted many evangelicals to think they can have their cake and eat it too. They can listen online to preaching by some of the best preachers alive. They can attend conferences led by the best worship leaders. They can interact with, uh, online with other Christians who are just like them all without the hassle of having to deal with real people with real problems who make up most of church life. And those realities have made the task of convincing Christians of the necessity of the local church an uphill battle. Nevertheless, the church, with all of its messiness, is still God's idea and is considered a biblical necessity in the life of every Christian. All those who follow Jesus need to participate in the life of the local church. God's plan for creation concludes when he gathers and redeems his people in his presence, together. And the local church, here in a small way, is gathering redeemed people in his presence. And despite all of our brokenness and messiness and all of our people problems, it displays God acting upon the church and upon its people out of love. Now, only a powerful God could take something as messy and dysfunctional uh, as sinners in a fallen world and make them, in their union with Christ, the centerpiece of his redemptive plan. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about the church as the ordinary means to salvation. Certainly lots of people come to Christ outside of the church, but it's God's way that the majority, the ordinary way, is through the ministry of the church. Only an infinitely wise God could take that which seems to be an unnecessary burden as zealous Christians wanting spiritual growth and make it his template where Christians are meant to flourish. Only a glorious God could take something so broken and yet design it to be a powerful light to display his glory to the world. Only a compassionate God could take what appears to be a burden and make it the needed safety for our souls. Yes, the local church is full. It's messy and broken in and of itself, and it's full of messy and broken people, but it's still the centerpiece of God's glory and redemption, this side of heaven. And so it's necessary not just for our spiritual growth and discipleship, but for our spiritual safety of our souls. And despite the attempts of many to make it so, the biblical paradigm for church health is not actually about numbers and money. 
Rather, it's about belonging to a group of people who, despite their dissimilarities, love Jesus and love one another. It's hard to believe that it comes down to something so simple, but it does. Saying it's simple doesn't mean it's simple to do. It's just simple to understand. The New Testament assumes diversity in the local church, bringing together people of different sexes, backgrounds, and opinions, and that displays the power of the gospel. And that's what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about. How can we be so different just like the Corinthians, how can we have so many issues and so many divisions and so many disagreements, just like the Corinthians, and yet how can we all come together and find common ground in our union with Christ, just like the Corinthians? Now, we've already looked for 11 chapters at all of their issues of division and idolatry and how some thought they were better than others, and apparently one of the (coughs) ways... Excuse me. Christians, the spiritual people, and the rest of us, was by their gifts. Those who had more prominent gifts were better Christians, right? Apostle Paul says no. He wants them to know they don't understand spiritual gifts at all. Because if they did, they would know, first and foremost, that gifts proclaim Jesus. Turn to verse 1. This is going to get a little complicated for a couple of verses. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. These are actually the key verses for the whole chapter. But they're usually skipped over because they're very difficult and somewhat technical. So you're going to have to bear with me, not just with my voice, but also as I try to (coughs) explain this. See, the Apostle Paul uses two different words for spiritual gifts. They translate the same in English, which makes this hard to understand. The most common word is charismata, which comes from the root word charis means grace. We get our word charisma from it. So it literally translates gifts of grace. So we should never think of gifts apart from grace, undeserved favor of God. In the New Testament, that word's found 16 times in Paul, once in Peter. At its simplest, it means a grace bestowed, a gift of grace. For an apostle who delights 
to talk about grace. <coughs> it shouldn't be surprising that he devotes attention to things of grace, the gifts of grace, how grace is given from one person to another. Outside of these three chapters, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, he talks about it in a variety of ways. He says, this is what I want to give to the Romans or the Corinthians or the Ephesians or whenever he sees them. He talks about the gift that generates life over against the sin of Adam in Romans 5. He refers to the gift of God, eternal life, offset the wages of sin, which is death in Romans 6. He calls the election of Israel a gift in Romans 11. Gives us a list of gifts in Romans 12. In 2 Corinthians 1, he refers to a gift that's granted Paul in response to everybody's prayers, presumably deliverance from some sort of danger. Doesn't really specify what it is. In 1 Timothy, Timothy's told not to neglect the gift that is uh, given him through the laying on of hands. <coughs> We're never told what that gift is. Similarly, 2 Timothy, I'm going to throw a lozenge, here it is. Second um, Timothy, we're told. To, uh, Timothy is told to fan into flame the gift of God that is in him through the laying on of Paul's hands. First Peter says every believer has a gift to serve others, administering God's grace in its various forms. That's every instance of the word outside of First Corinthians. So here, Paul says, you don't lack any spiritual gift. But clearly he uses this word in a whole variety of ways. One of the most intriguing is in chapter 7. If you think back there, it was a great passage on marriage and singleness. You have to go back a couple months. He called them gifts. He said marriage was a gift and celibacy was a gift. Presumably you cannot enjoy both gifts simultaneously. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> All the rest of the use of this word in the entire New Testament is in this chapter. We, st we start in verse 4. And end in verse 31. It's used plural three times for the gifts of healing, verses 9, 28, and 30. Here's where things get tricky. It's not used in verse 1. Another word is used there. So it's not a technical term that Paul means these extraordinary special gifts like healing and tongues. It doesn't even mean the ordinary gifts like encouragement or generous giving. It's used repeatedly for the gift of salvation. It's even used for celibacy and marriage. So in that sense, every single Christian is charismatic. We all receive gifts. Now as I said, Paul uses a different word in verse 1. He changes it up because everywhere else he's used some version of this charis or charisma or charismata word. And here he uses the word pneumatikon. It really means gifts of the spirit, literally. He says, now about spiritual gifts, brothers. He's setting the agenda for the next three chapters. And how he uses this word is really important because it controls Everything he says for the next three chapters. And you know what's coming next is the chapter on love. It's controlled by this verse. And he uses this word three times to refer to spiritual people. And three times to spiritual things, which include gifts. 
Now, if you remember, a year ago, we were going through a series on the most misused and misunderstood verses in the Bible. And one of the key things we learned was that context was king. And the context of 1 Corinthians as a whole, and the chapters before this and the chapters after this, are all about people. So I think Paul is using spiritual gifts, charismata, to make an important point about spiritual people, pneumatikon. He's dealing less with the nature of spiritual gifts and more with the nature of spiritual people. And that's important to understand because that helps us understand everything in the next three chapters. This is all about what spiritual people are like, not so much about what particular ability I have. So let me try to even simplify it some more. Spiritual gifts in verse 1 refers to what is given to you for you. All the rest of the uh, chapter, spiritual gifts, refers to gifts given to you for others. Do you see the difference? At the beginning, this is for you. We're going to make you spiritual. And all the rest is, I'm going to give you these things for other people. It's important we understand that. So sometimes God gives you gifts because you need them. And sometimes God gives you gifts because everyone else needs them. I'll use myself as an example, though it's a pretty bad example this morning. Sometimes, many times, now, I need the grace of God. And he gives it to me. And I'm grateful. But there's other times you need the grace of God. And through the spiritual gift of preaching or prophecy, I exercise that gift so you get that grace. Do you see the difference? Understanding that will help us get through the chapter. So back to verse 1. What do these teach us? Paul's comparing two kinds of people. Spiritual people and those who've been led into idolatry. And he tells us there's an easy way to know the difference. Spiritual people proclaim Jesus as Lord through their lives, through their actions, through their words. People who belittle Jesus or speak against Jesus are not spiritual people. In contrast to those people, you'll know the Holy Spirit is active in someone's life because they speak of the Lordship of Christ. They speak about Jesus being their Lord. They speak about Jesus as someone they follow, as someone they love, as someone who leads them. Because the Holy Spirit is absolutely committed to proclaiming Christ. And so when we look at the whole context of these chapters, we see the desire to proclaim Christ is the overriding theme for chapter 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 12 is all about the church as the body of Christ. Chapter 13 is about the character of Christ as it's reflected in the church. Sort of a sneak peek ahead a couple of weeks. It's not about marriage. My apologies. They... Uh, talk about that when we get there. Chapter 14 is about how specific gifts build up the church. So anytime a gift is used in a way that's divisive, it's not building up the body of Christ. Anytime a gift is used in a way that exalts a person instead of Jesus, it's not building up the body of Christ. Anytime a gift is used in a way that could lead someone astray, it's not building up the body of Christ. Spiritual people using their spiritual gifts do so to build up the body of Christ. That's the purpose. So the whole church is then able to proclaim Jesus as Lord. That's the purpose for the whole chapter. That's the purpose for this whole section. So how does it work out in practice? Well, the first thing we see, starting in verse 4, is that gifts are for others says, verse 4, gifts are for others. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
The last phrase is the key phrase, for the common good. Paul expects the church, even the divided, arrogant, idolatrous church of Corinth, to be a model of Christian community. The church is the means by which Jesus is uniquely present and uniquely presents himself into the world. So we have, first of all, varieties of gifts. Here using the word charismata, so it's a means of grace made practical. Peter urges us, 1 Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So varieties of gifts. Second, we have varieties of service. It's interesting, here he uses the word uh, koinai, uh from which we get our word deacon, which simply refers to ways in which we can be servants of one another. He's emphasizing the attitude he wants the people in the church to have. They tended to see the church as an arena for demonstrating their own talents and abilities, almost a stage on which to perform, and of course for which they would get all the credit. And the reality is that's still a big temptation for a lot of people today. But Paul's reminding us that our essential calling is to be a servant uh, for each other. Whatever gifts we have, whatever gifts we use, we use them in the service of others. Third, he says there's a variety of activities. And this is interesting. He uses the word energinata. That is God's energy at work within the life of the believer which overflows into the life of the community. So here's Paul stressing the operation of God's spirit in the life of the believer is not a theory. It produces actual practical results which can be noticed. Changed lives, transformed relationships, healthy churches, effective testimonies, serving one another, so on and so forth, as each of us is energized by the Spirit, the Lordship of Jesus is demonstrated in as many ways as there are people. And then he wraps up, verse 7, stressing this theme of community to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He's bringing the Corinthians back to this idea that whatever you've been given, it's for the good of the church. He's not giving you anything for the good of you. The Holy Spirit is not giving you gifts to make you look cooler than everybody else. He's giving you gifts so the church would be built up. That's a really key truth. That Christians, gifts given Christians are intended to demonstrate they have the Spirit of God operating within them as they're working to build up the church. Spirit makes himself felt and known through his gifts as well as by the, his fruit. And I think often in a church's lack of credibility as a community of the Holy Spirit lies there because many people don't, can't, won't, whatever, use their gifts in the life of the church. And so the variety of this Christian community gets hidden and dulled and our corporate life appears to others as conformist and boring instead of being diverse and colorful. The idea that we're all different and we function differently is supposed to be a positive. In our world, it's often not. And it's important to appreciate the rich variety of activities here, and also to note, completely unrelated to spiritual maturity or personal preference, Paul is adamant to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That refrain runs through the chapter like the theme in a symphony. This is the community of the Holy Spirit. Every single member contributes for the common good. You don't have to reach some predetermined level of spiritual maturity in order to contribute. You don't have to reach some arbitrary age in order to contribute. You don't have to have a list of impressive achievements in order to contribute. You just have to show up. That's the number one qualifier for can you contribute to the life of the church? Show up. And then you can contribute. 
That's all it takes. Sounds amazingly simple. It's never quite as simple as it sounds. But that's what Paul's saying. Every single person. And, you know, I'm amazed every time I deal with our youth and and with our children, um, how much spiritual wisdom is hidden there. And I wonder how often we even listen to it or we dismiss it because they're of their age. We need to be much better listeners to our youth, particularly those of us who are older. Um, uh, God uses them as well. So we have this great variety of gifts. It's all given to serve other people. Well, how do I know what mine are? Let's get down to the real important questions here. I mean, I know what I'm already good at, so why don't I do that? Well, not necessarily, because it's important to realize that gifts are spiritual. Verses 8 through 11, gifts are spiritual. It says, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So I said these gifts are spiritual, so let's look at verses 8 through 11 very quickly. In almost every single verse, Paul goes through the list, he names some gifts, but he all says they're sourced. They all come from the Spirit. Verse 8, for to one is given through the Spirit. Verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. Verse 11, all these are empowered by the one and same Spirit. So you have to understand where they come. The Holy Spirit gives the gifts to everyone. See that throughout the passage. Verse 7, to each is given. Verse 11, apportions to each one. So every Christian is a recipient of a spiritual gift, or more commonly, spiritual gifts, plural. I think it's exceedingly rare for a person to have just one gift usually has a mix of gifts, and it's how they get blended together is what makes their ministry unique. And for a married couple, it's how your blend and her blend and how you put them both together, which makes you really unique. So we're always talking about a gift mix, both as singles and as couples. And probably as families, just didn't get that far. <laughs> And by the way, this is only one of four lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, so it's not an all-encompassing list by any means. That said, we're all given gifts that are spiritual, and we're called to use those gifts for the common good, which is what we would normally call ministry. Yes, you have been called into ministry. You might think that only applies to Dave, Frank, and myself, but you would be wrong. Frank and Dave, maybe, but let's not push the envelope. Yes, we do have particular callings as teaching elders, but everyone is called into ministry because everyone is called to minister to others using their spiritual gifts for the common good. So if you think ministry is the business of the professionals, loosely referring to the pastors, we will never get it done. We'll never get it done if we think ministry is uh, all of our meetings. Meetings are not ministry. Meetings may be important, meetings may be necessary, but you're not doing ministry by voting I. Ministry is what happens when you sit down with all your mess, clinging to Jesus, with someone else in all their mess, and you're pointing them to Jesus. That's ministry. And so I don't want to ask you, where do you serve? Because when I ask people that, they tell me about a job that they do. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of jobs that need to be done, and we need everyone to do them. But rather than asking, where do you serve, let me ask you, who are you serving? Whose life are you speaking into? 
With whom are you walking day after day in a way that you're pointing them to Jesus? That you're opening the scriptures where you can say, you know, I'm struggling too. Let me show you where I found help here in the gospel. Ministry is ultimately about people. It's about serving others. And it's very easy for us to get it mixed up with just being busy with church work. Some of us, if we're too busy for real ministry to real people, have to repent of our busyness. Because then we're just too busy. So there's a call here for spiritual people who are focused on Jesus and not on ourselves, and a call to ministry that serves one another. But I'm going to close this out by skipping down to verse 27 and picking up one more very important point. We'll come back next week and pick up the big piece in the middle that I skipped. Focuses on a related theme. But we've seen that in order to help proclaim Jesus, gifts are given to serve others, and gifts are given that are spiritual in nature. But lastly, it's important for us to realize that gifts are assignments. Gifts are assignments. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Then he asks a bunch of rhetorical questions. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The obvious answer is no, but earnestly desire the higher gifts which leads us into chapter 13. So to be effective in ministry, and you've been called into ministry, the church has to work with God's own methods and people. It seems to be the force here in this list in verse 28. It repeats some of the gifts from earlier. It omits some and it adds some new ones. And Paul's repeating the fact of variety, the need for unity, the call to ministry, but there's some slight and uh, though important differences here. Instead of concentrating on what the Spirit gives for the common good, he writes of appointing people, apostles, prophets, teachers. And those phrases, first, second, and third, um, I think they refer to time rather than importance. He's not saying the apostles are first in importance and then the prophets and then the teachers. He's saying the apostles came first, then the prophets, then the teachers, in the life of the church. Certainly the apostles founded local churches, the prophets proclaimed God's word into each situation, and the teachers built securely upon that foundation. We read that in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now there's people here who may be wondering, am I gifted? Do I have anything to contribute? What do I have to bring to the community? What are my gifts? As we've already seen, every single believer has received gifts intended to be used for the common good. But I want to be clear that gifts are things that you don't work up to. They're things that are lived into. They're not things that you earn, but things that you are. So here's the challenge. If Christians are not using their gifts, whatever they might be, for the common good, they're depriving the rest of the body. By withholding their gifts, they're withholding the giving of grace to others. If you refuse to use your gift in the church, you're depriving the person sitting down the aisle from you. You have grace to give them that you're not giving them. And in using these gifts to build up the body, a Christian is essentially agreeing that Jesus is Lord over every aspect, not just of my life, but over the whole church life. Tim Keller said somewhere, I couldn't find it, but no one is merely a consumer of services, but everyone is to be a distributor of grace. So the question you've all been waiting on, how do you identify the gifts that God has given you? I'm going to greatly disappoint you because we don't have time to go through that in great detail this morning, mainly because it misses the main point of the text. 
But for those of you going to the new member class this afternoon, you might hear something about it. However, it's important to have some categories to think through spiritual gifts as they're presented in the Bible. And all of the gifts, I think, can be categorized according to the messianic categories of prophet, priest, and king. Prophetic gifts, uh, I think I put these in your outline, are based on understanding and articulating truth. Include wisdom and knowledge, verse 8. Prophecy, tongues, interpretation, distinguishing between spirits, verse 10. Teaching, verse 29. Evangelism, Ephesians 4. Exhortation, Romans 12. Speaking, 1 Peter 4. Utterances of wisdom and knowledge, essentially communicating God's truth with precise clarity. So if a person is sharing her troubles uh, with you, but is indecisive about how to navigate some of life's more difficult moments, and a friend with this gift is able to speak wisdom into her life, asserting with precise clarity that Jesus is Lord even in these hard times, then they are exercising that gift. And these gifts are often exalted in the church because they tend to be more public in nature. But if they are spiritual in nature, and if they are given with the intention to uh, serve others, then they shouldn't be a source of pride because ultimately it's not about you. They're not more valuable or better than any other gifts. In fact, every now and then people ask me, what gifts do you want to see more of in the church? And I always answer discernment. There are very few people who say, I have the gift of discernment. I want a whole bunch more of those people help us figure out what to do and everything else. How do we respond to everything going on in our lives and in the world? Discerning people are gold in the life of a church. Personal preference. Priestly gifts are uh, those based on understanding and supplying basic needs. Helping, verse 28, healing, working miracles, verses 9 and 10, encouragement, serving, sharing, mercy, Romans 12, pastoring, Ephesians 4. All of these gifts are pretty self-evident. They all have sort of a shepherding uh, kind of component uh, to them. Most of them don't need any explanation except for one. And it's called the gift. It doesn't actually say gift of healing, does it? It says gifts of healing, plural. In other words, anyone with this gift can be used as an instrument in which he or she can provide emotional, spiritual, even physical healing. But the focus is not on the individual who has a gift, but on their willingness to be a conduit of the gift because God is the ultimate healer who will use the gift in a variety of ways. It's the only one where every time it's mentioned, it's in the plural. And so there's this sense of how God is working through this person to bring healing to another person. And then you have kingly gifts, which are more similar to priestly gifts, but focus on the group and understanding group needs. Faith is usually put here. Believing what God has revealed enough to act on it, to influence us. So I don't think he's referring to saving faith here. It's certainly a gift too. But he's talking about how your faith is used to serve others. Have you ever had someone come up and say, I'm just struggling. I'm doubting. I don't know if I believe. And there's a point where you can say, let me believe for you. Let me walk alongside you, sit next to you, be with you shoulder to shoulder, and just lean on me. I'll believe for the both of us. That's an incredible gift that serves others. Other kingly gifts include uh, founding gifts like apostle. We might consider a church planter. There, uh, leadership administration. So here's the controversial part, because none of the other stuff was controversial. Spiritual gifts, rightly understood, I don't believe are about abilities as much as they are about assignments. Paul's central concern in Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 
1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, the four spiritual gifts passages, is that every believer fulfills his or her role in building up the church. When Paul uses the word grace and gifts together, in the immediate context, in every case, he's discussing ministry assignments, either his own or, or some uh, or others. It's the Corinthians who want to focus on special abilities. I want the cool gift so everyone will think I'm cool. And Paul's like, no, it's not about you. It's about this assignment God is giving you to serve others and build up the church. In fact, it's probably even better if they don't even know who's doing it. This is not the way we commonly look at spiritual gifts. The activities that Paul lists can all be described as ministries, but not all of them can be described as abilities. The majority of them can be described as both, but they can all be described as ministries, but not all of them can be described as abilities. Next week, when we get to verses 12 to 26, he's not going to talk about any ability concepts in this extended metaphor of the body at all, it's all about roles or ministries or assignments of the members of the body. God has given various gifts to individuals in the church. Some have prophetic gifts. Some have priestly gifts. Some have kingly gifts. You may have a mix in there, but God has given them to everyone, but he hasn't given anyone all the gifts. Even if your gifts are the more visible ones, like preaching, we're incomplete without the gifts of others. If we look at all the gifts, we need people who are prophetic types. We need priestly types. We need kingly types. All the assignments need to be filled. However, I have to say there can be a dark side uh, to our use of gifts because we're fallen sinful people. So some who have strong prophetic gifts tend to be impatient. Takes them away from being relational. Others are very priestly and pastoral, shepherd people well, but are often inefficient in how they get things done. And there are certain members who are kingly who get things done by being efficient, but sometimes can abandon people in the process because they just want to get the job done in the most productive way possible. So there are potential dark sides to these different gift mixes that people possess. And God brings us all together, puts us in community, so there's service and benefit for the whole body, where my gift can cover where yours doesn't, and vice versa. And that's a pretty amazing thing. The community of God's people is intended to reflect this self-giving nature of God. So the exercise of gifts, not for personal advantage, but always, always for the building up of the body. Gifts are the glue through which the church is supposed to stick together. And the reason why the improper use of gifts is so destructive is it breaks down that unity, that communion, that we have not only with God, but with each other. So in order to achieve unity, members of the church need to engage in the passive act of receiving and the active act of sharing. If you want to put it in economic terms, you might say we're in the business of paying it forward. It's only through the power of a grace-giving, self-sacrificing Savior that sinners like you and me can have our hardened hearts softened and our cold hearts thawed. Because all of this is because the amazing power of God's grace means that we get the gifts. We receive the gifts. We get the gift reception that Jesus deserved. And we get it because he took the gift rejection that we deserve. We get the gift reception that Jesus deserved because he took the gift rejection that we deserved. That's what makes this possible. So even in the end, every one of these discussions, every use of gifts, 
Everything about it is a means of proclaiming Jesus as Lord. That's the dominant theme of gifts. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Thank you for your patience with my voice today. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you. As always, speak to us through your word. You speak to us by your son. You speak to us by your spirit. Open our eyes that we might see Jesus. We confess our tendency for busyness. Our preference for meetings rather than messiness. Give us the grace that we might be more about the messiness and serving others and telling them to cling to Jesus in the middle of it. Help us to bring them alongside of us and help us go to them when they can't walk and sit down next to them as we all cling to the one we so desperately need. Lord, I pray, we pray for one another. Help us to repent of our busyness and to train our sights on the glory of Jesus so that in our Christ-centeredness we might become committed servants to one another. We ask it so Jesus might be exalted and that we might be changed. Grant that we may live like people who are known as givers of grace. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.